How would you feel if one morning you opened ESPN or your news broadcast channel or just tune the radio and you are about to listen to leftist analysis of sports? How would that feel like? Just let's do an imagination exercise and think that despite the usual reporting of goals, transfers, little scandals and the gossip that are going, who's dating who, who cheating on who, you will be bombarded with this avalanche of information telling you the leftist implications of sports, the ideology behind sports, and how workers, in this case athletes or sports people, can organize to have a better future. I seem to like this imagination exercise, and personally, I would prefer to have that on the news when I watch daily in Romania compared to what I now see if I just go and flip the channels. The latest scandal in football, oh look who the soccer guy is dating, and all of this crap that just fills our minds and numbs us, and completely doesn't allow us to move and organize and to recognize athletes as players, I think uh, as workers. I think sometimes we have this tendency to think of athletes as something is outside, they live in a different world, they don't really interact with this world just because there's just so much going in their life, they can earn so much money, but usually the performances we see in the major leagues, or the first leagues as we know them right here in Romania, is not valid for all the other leagues. Usually athletes are not paid a huge amount of money, and their career might be way shorter than that of an electrician, or a plumber, or a university professor. I think what my friends Calder and Ian are going to do in this episode is just fantastic. I think they completely argue in favor of a leftist revival of sports commentary and sports analysis. And I think it's time right now to try to link it more to society rather than trying to keep it more away from it. There is this tendency to regard sports and video games and other such mediums as apolitical environments which we just watch for leisure. But I think it's time to realize that nothing can really escape society and when there is an inequality in society, it might as well be very easily projected onto sports, onto video games and other such mediums. Without further ado, I owe you an apology. I was supposed to post an episode last week but due to personal health issues which I've described previously as having had COVID and some other mental health issues i was i have to i had to take a little break but now i would say i'm back um back more or less and i want to take just this time to acknowledge that there might be people out there suffering and if you're listening to this and you might suffer from a bit of a mental health problem or some kind of health issue that you do not know how to point the finger to it it is good to look for help it is good to try to understand what is going on with yourself rather than just like you know putting a nice band-aid on it and saying oh it's gonna be fine i don't have to worry about it uh maybe treat something before it gets bad because you never know how i'll be able to tackle it when it gets too big for you to actually grasp it yeah i don't want to sound cynical but please take care of yourself the crazy time is out there and i hope i'll see you next week we're preparing two beautiful interviews this week and it's gonna be a fantastic time so stay safe sit back and enjoy this episode of Southpaw along with Ian. Um, I got my start in journalism actually working for a documentary filmmaking company that, that made documentaries for Frontline, uh, the PBS site. And yeah, I've been, I've been interested in that for a long time. Um, I've worked for a bunch of different organizations. Uh, I worked at Vice for a summer. I was on um, production team of a show um, on MSNBC. I'm happy to talk about the way that worked with my politics as well. Um, and yeah, I've been just kind of writing for a pretty long time, and this was seemed like an exciting opportunity to, to work with a, a friend. I'm Ian. Uh, I am a freelance journalist based in D.C. Uh, I started writing about sports when I was an intern at the Portland Press Herald, which is a, a, a Maine's largest daily newspaper. Uh, and, and now I'm, I'm back in DC and, and uh, doing some freelance work for a handful of places. 
Well, so it seems like you guys are very accustomed to the journalistic world, and it seems that Southpaw is a very serious project. Behind the scenes, previously I told you that I'm not very much accustomed to the world of sports. I don't necessarily follow soccer, football, or any other sports, but I'm really looking forward to your newsletter weekly. Before we actually dive into discussing it further on, I'm very curious what has actually made you create this newsletter, and how do you take this format? Was it something you guys have planned for a very long time, or was it something just spontaneous over a couple of drinks? I think somewhere in the middle. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, we we have known e- we went to school together. We went to Bowdoin together, and um, we've known each other for a long time. Ian wrote um, a football column for the school newspaper, The Orient, um, which I was editing at the time. Um, so we kind of connected. I guess over that and just um, mutual interest in in both of these fields and how they kind of can tie together. Um, I would say we really just felt like there was a a kind of dearth of that kind of publication. I mean, some sports and politics publications exist, and there's been a lot of discussion in the greater sports media world about how when politics enters sports, you have to talk about it. But I think we wanted to kind of flip that on its head and think about what happens when um, you look at the sports world from a political lens, which we didn't really feel like a lot of a lot of places were doing. I mean, you know, when um, NBA, WNBA players go on strike, the ESPN has to cover that, for example. Um, and there are even some kind of more explicitly political outlets that will cover that as well. But I think we wanted to really center politics and specifically left-wing politics in all of our analysis. Yeah, and the way we landed on the newsletter format uh, was a little circuitous. Calder and I had talked about launching some sort of publication, uh, and we looked at exactly what route to take, maybe a print publication or a, a digital like a website, a full website, and we ultimately decided that, at least for now, the the newsletter format was the best choice. So it's been kind of interesting because there's been a lot of uh, kind of chatter and coverage about veteran journalists leaving established publications to launch their own subscription-based sites, uh, like uh, Matt Iglesias just did it recently, and people like Andrew Sullivan have been doing it for a while using Substack in particular, which is the platform we use. And for journalists who have kind of dedicated followings, uh, it's actually a pretty good way to make money and they have complete editorial freedom. So these established journalists have been making a living uh, off Substack, but we're coming at it a bit from the other side and trying to build an audience from the ground up. Uh, but I, I personally really like the medium that the Substack provides. It's like a really easy... Uh, and uh, kind of hands-off way to distribute content. Uh, and we, we enjoy having the editorial freedom. But, it, you know, we feel a bit like we're part of a, I don't know, I kind of stumbled into this wave of people mm-hmm. migrating to Substack. I didn't really know much about it before, but it's been neat to watch the momentum behind it build. Yeah, it was actually, I think I, think I was reading a couple of weeks ago an analysis about Substack becoming increasingly popular over the last year that, they opened so many positions and they offered so many jobs and people migrated from Patreon company to Substack to work. And it's very fascinating in the way I think the newsletters are making not only a comeback, but I think they're also trying to change very much the way we look at email. Because I think in college, we tend to regard email as something very business-like, very corporate-minded. Quite seldom there is an email about a party or something personal going on, but we often neglect the personal aspect of it. And I think newsletters here come and and definitely try to shape that and bring back maybe email to the people. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, one thing I think that's interesting about the medium is that it's kind of a return to old school blogging that you saw Mm -hmm. maybe at the beginning of this century. Um, And basically, at least at the moment, and it changes every few months, but it seems like the future of of media in general is these large leg- legacy publications like New York Times, Washington Post, um, 
I guess some stuff on TV uh, mm-hmm. is going to have, you know, they're well-funded. They can, they can pay for journalists. So they're kind of stealing journalists from smaller publications. And then at the same time you have the proliferation of a lot of um, both newsletters and kind of small independent publications. So that kind of middle place um, of, you know, like a Vox, for example, I think there are increasingly fewer sites like that. Um, So, yeah. um, And I I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. I think that the, but I think that the good part of these kind of small publications is that um, people have the chance to really speak directly to their audience. I would say the, um, one, one of the downsides and hopefully something that can, that can change is that right now the people, the people who are able to kind of monetize successfully on Substack and, and actually make a, a full living off of that are people who are journalists who already had a kind of large following. I think the, probably the next step for the newsletter format, which will make it a bit more like the, the kind of blogging, freewheeling blogging of the early two thousands is, people will start to be discovered on Substack and, um, and these other kind of newsletter platforms. And, you know, as Ian mentioned, that's certainly our hope. I'm also very curious guys to hear a bit more because previously I think you, Ian, Ian, you have mentioned about the lack of political discussion about sports. And I'm curious if there is some kind of assumption that when you talk about sports, you must, uh, or you should like try to be objective and what does actually objective mean in the media world? Yeah, I mean, sports journalism occupies this kind of funky niche where you have journalists who are also fans and you have journalists speaking to fans. And I don't think, I think fans reading sports journalism want their journalists who are covering their teams to share or at least appreciate the, you know, the passion that a fan brings to the sport. But um, with and, and then that's, I think journalists embrace that to a certain degree, but uh, like wh- where objectivity comes into play is, you know, on, on these so-called political questions, right? Like in sports journalism, it's okay to be objective so long as you're being a fan, but once you mm-hmm. become political, you have to then become objective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, it's, it's different than like, I mean, covering the team is very different than covering a campaign, for example, because you want the journalists covering the campaigns not to be like stands of the candidate they're covering, whereas you might want a beat reporter to be, you know, so at least appreciate the fandom of, of uh, the team. So, you know, objectivity comes into play kind of selectively in sports journalism. And it, it's a bit of a double standard. Mm-hmm. What about you, Ian? Do you have any thoughts on this? Um, oh, Calder, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I confused you guys for a <laughs> no, second. No worries. No, yeah, I can I can um, speak to that as well. I think, um, yeah, I definitely agree with, with what Ian was saying. I think it's a, it's a tough place to be. I think the problem, a big problem in political media is the question of uh, subjectivity versus objectivity. And the idea that, you know, a journalist isn't supposed to vote and all of that seems particularly antiquated to me, um, especially living in, you know, what everybody calls a a post-truth world. Um, I think to speak more to this kind of objective point or objective versus subjective point, we, a big reason we're interested in launching this newsletter is because, um, you know, there's a kind of burgeoning left-wing media in this country, but um, I think it needs to be a way bigger part of mainstream discourse than it is. And obviously, we have a small platform, but we do think we can talk to people, um, you know, uh, just from personal experience. Um, you know, we have some some older followers, um, our basically our parents and our parents' friends and these people we've known, we've known for a long time who, who I feel like, um, most of them in my kind of larger circle and certainly not all of them, but, but most of them are, um, kind of classic liberals who have basically been 
told for a long time that, uh, you know, a better world isn't really possible. The Democratic Party has their their best interests at heart um, and that we, we can't really do anything to really reshape the way that the country looks. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that there are also people who are, are open to kind of more radical ideas when you present them um, maybe in a way that they're not used to hearing. So from, you know, if you look at these kind of things from, from a sports perspective, I mean, take, I don't know, the, you know, NBA, WNBA wildcat strike. I know we kind of keep returning to that because that was, that was kind of a big mm-hmm. sports politics watershed moment this year. Um, they, uh, you know, that was a, that was a really, um, kind of radical action that they took and it, it fizzled kind of quickly, but when it was happening, um, there were a lot of people who kind of were, because it wasn't directly political and involved in the kind of, you know, politics news cycle, there were a lot of people who were able to think of it in a different way and think, oh yeah, I actually support this. Um, so I think that that's kind of part of what we're doing with the newsletter as well. I mean, I don't think we have any idea that we're going to be objective. I think that we're, you know, we're, we're giving our opinions and, and hopefully that that can, you know, move, move the needle a little bit along, obviously with a much kind of broader movement. Definitely. And I think it's so much needed nowadays because I keep coming back as well to the WNBA strikes and the NBA strikes of the summer to think about, let's say, political reporting on the base of sports because the place where I'm coming from, Romania, tends to be a place that regards sports solely as entertainment, as leisure time activities. You watch them because you want to escape the dreadful life, I don't know, inside capitalism or anything like that. You know, you can insert any kind of criticism of the system you want in here. But it seems that with the strike that the NBA had this summer, which was also reported back here in Romania, people realize that there is a political aspect to sports and that there is place for political analysis of sports. Do you guys feel that this analysis of politics of sports and a political analysis of sports by themselves should also go hand in hand with the criticism of society? Or should they somehow stay separated and maybe meet there in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the I think a criticism of sports is a criticism of society in, in that sense. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, there's a tendency both among fans and the sports media to hive sports off uh, from you know broader uh, themes of political discourse and say, "Look, this is a, a separate, independent, and unique thing." Uh, let's not talk about it as if it has has broader impacts. And yeah, I mean, it, it, the interesting thing is I've, now that I've been reading a little bit more about t- these European uh, discussions about the politics of sports, I mean, those are basically premised on the fact that criticisms of, of a sports team or of a uh, sports league have implications in the broader society. And that seems to be something kind of absent from... Mm-hmm. U.S. discourse, and it's certainly not taken for granted. So, I mean, I guess that's a thing we would, I think that's one of the arguments that we're trying to advance is that, like, even uh, a labor dispute in baseball, for example, which would seem to be, you know, no pun intended, like insider baseball, it's not just about the structure of baseball. Like, the reason that labor relations are the way that they are in the MLB or in the minor league uh, is because of, of, of a labor history that involves everything outside of, um, of baseball. And you, you can't really understand what's happening in a specific labor negotiation without understanding uh, that broader history and the broader current of, uh, you know, labor movements in the U.S. Yeah, I think in many ways you can think of sports as a reflection of, of society. And, and that's been kind of talked about a lot um, in our profession uh, or a desired profession. I, I, I think that what we're trying to do is kind of refract that back, right? So if you can think of this greater sports world as kind of a reflection of our priorities as a, as you know, a nation in, in terms of America, which is mostly what we've talked about, but, you know, it also is just kind of a broader society, then what do what does the way that sports function 
how does the functioning of sports um, refract back the idea of what society looks like? Like, it's it's pretty easy to look at sports leagues and see the kind of priorities that we that we have, especially in in COVID times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to add on that, I kind of hate that language of like sports as a reflection of society because it seems very kind of one directional, like to go full vulgar Marxist, like it seems to relegate sports to a place of kind of like the tippy top of the superstructure, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to part of the base. And I think that's just a little bit um, simplistic. Like I think the coronavirus is a good example of that. Like, you know, sports like college football, for example, has been uh, incredibly lax in its restrictions of the coronavirus and the, the virus has been ripping through teams and you could look at that and say, oh, well, it's just a reflection of our broader priorities. But then, if you, you know, you step back and you think, well, you know, hundreds of thousands, of, if not millions of people are watching college football every week and they're seeing a bunch of uh, players and, and, you know, people who are a source of cultural authority not taking the virus seriously. And, and that actually has like a causal impact back on how, how people uh, interact in their daily lives. So it's not just a matter of sports reflecting our priorities, but sports are actually driving our cultural priorities. And if you could come up with a, a, a pretty broad array of uh, issues where that's the case, I think the discourse around police brutality uh, is a good example of that. Like the, the language that emerged in the post 9-11 era about respecting the flag and venerating the flag uh, as a way to, you know, show respect for the, the military and, and the troops. Like that was that that didn't get injected into sports. Like that was forged in the crucible of sports. Like the the just or not the justice. The Defense Department spent massive amounts of money to promote. Uh, like militaristic and so-called patriotic displays at sports games. That was their primary venue in the post-11 era for that type of pro-military propaganda. And now look how broadly that spread into the broader society, right? Like that's not sports reflecting, that's sports driving. So I think when you, the long-winded way of saying like, it's not just a reflection, like it's actually, uh, sports are actually driving and shaping our cultural priorities. And I think part of the point of the newsletter is to point that out. Yeah, I think that that's kind of a a better way to say what I was getting at. I I also think that um, when you basically people on the right argue that sports should just be escapism, but they argue that because of things that Ian was talking about. Like yeah. the the right in America has used sports as a cultural driver and a cultural force for a long time, um, and we're I guess just trying to do our part to even that playing field. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. I'm also very curious because one of my favorite pieces from uh, from the newsletter has been actually the bonus that uh, I think came from Wolf, uh, Wolf Herzberg, I hope I pronounce his name right, which said that have European football's oligarchs ruined the game for good. And I'm very curious actually how do you think and what do you think is maybe the future and the present of ownership of teams like do do we see right now maybe a more collective based approach where like town or town councils own the teams, or are we going towards more oligarchs owning them and using them as political propaganda machines? Maybe. Yeah, well, a really interesting thing I found the other day is there was this whole slate of articles in like the twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen range uh, when the NFL was rejiggering its ownership. And, you know, the NFL has a, a revenue sharing model. So all the teams distribute the income, uh, like each other's, they pool their revenue and then distribute equally throughout the teams. And there are all these articles about like saying the NFL is communism, or, like the NFL is socialism <laughs> and, you know, in a kind of like tongue in cheek way and like mostly written by like centrists and people on the right and saying like, well, actually it's like working a little bit, you know, and maybe this is a model of like small scale socialism, but like you definitely can't scale that up. And I mean, the mm-hmm. ironic thing is that it, like the flip side of calling the NFL communism is calling the NFL a cartel, which is really what it is. And mm-hmm. it's not that like 
I mean, when you when you hive off, when you apply a, a distributive model to, I mean, well, the irony is that like the country is fine uh, with socialism and communism for rich people, and it's not okay with <laughs> socialism <laughs> for the people who need it, right? And it, I mean, the NFL has become increasingly reactionary, um, in, increasingly oligarchic, and I think the irony is like when when you uh, refuse to extend distributive models and economic democracy to a broad group of people, but only to a small group of people, those people just become, you know, increasingly corrupt, increasingly reactionary and increasingly oligarchic. Um, That seems to be the lesson of the NFL at least. Although the Green Bay Packers, I will say, are a pretty good model. I don't know if you're familiar with, they're owned by the like greater community. Like they have community ownership of the team, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, and you know has, they've gotten a lot of press for that, but I guess that's a that's a model I'd love to see expand, uh, like and, and proliferate in the future. But I'm not particularly optimistic about that. Yeah, I thought I thought Wolf's piece was great. Um, I I think there's more of a hope for for that kind of model in Europe than there is in America at the moment. Um, the model of collective ownership, just because yeah. I think that Europe. I mean. Like like we mentioned, kind of at the top, uh, European football teams um, are often more localized and reflect the politics of a community or a group much more than um, any any real sports team does in America um, or any kind of major major sports team. Uh, I do think, on the other side, which is kind of what Wolf's piece was exploring, you have. Um, oligarchs running teams in Europe uh, who are, you know, richer often than the richest sports owners in the, in the U S and you know, you, he he mentioned John Henry in that piece who, who owns part of Liverpool. Um, Mm -hmm. John Henry is one of the richest owners in baseball and, and he's not so rich compared to um, Abramovich and, um, a lot of the other uh, money that, that's going into, especially English football, um, mm-hmm. but you know, football around around Europe too, um, France and, and Germany too. Um, yeah, and, and the angle in Wolf's piece that we we thought about exploring a bit later are the you know the the geopolitics of soccer are very interesting. Like mm-hmm. you have foreign oligarchs who are using ownership in Western sports teams to kind of legitimate like both their domestic political priorities and also gain stature on the international stage, like almost as if, you know, like a, a Sa- the Saudi uh, monarchy can legitimate its massive accumulation of capital if it invests that capital in a, a soccer team in England. And you, you don't have that, you have that dynamic play out on a smaller scale uh, in the U.S., but it doesn't entirely take on the geopolitical importance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like, simply at a kind of m- more basic level, like simply ha- asking fans and spectators to take an active interest in their ownership and like give a damn about where the money that's buying their players is coming from, I think would be a step in the right direction. Like our friend at the Nation, Dave Zirin wrote a piece recently about Calder. Do you remember who what the owner's name was in the NFL? Um, oh, the, the Pistons. Oh, sorry, in the NBA. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the Pistons owner, the owner of the Detroit Tom Pistons Gorsh. in the NBA. Tom Gorsh. Yeah. He made his fortune off of like predatory. He owns a, a company that uh, like people used to call their uh, loved ones who were in prison and like it's it charges absolutely exorbitant rates for phone calls and it's like a especially known as especially predatory business practice and like in the middle of this whole nfl hoopla about um the strike and so on like zyron wrote this piece saying like hey we need to actually pay attention to where these people are getting their money uh because the, the nba can talk all at once about you know advancing racial justice and advancing mm-hmm. social good but when its owners are profiting off of exploitative and racist business practices, that rings a little bit hollow. And I don't think 
like maybe two percent of fans would know that. So yeah. uh, drawing that into the the center of the conversation, I think, would be a really good advancement. No, definitely. And I think you guys have touched upon this maybe even from your first issue in the softball because I just pulled up the first one you've sent out and uh, Calder, you might have said this, I think. It said the sport owners are rich enough to make all of that academic mere dinner party chit-chat for when they're go- done gossiping about one another. If professional athletes can threaten the ownership class enough that they're forced back into the world with the rest of us, if they can hold their feet to the fire and demand what they're owed beyond money, then that will be an important start. Do you still stand by those words by any chance, or have you changed your mind about them or want to expand on that? Oh no, I, I definitely still stand by them. I'm, I'm happy to expand on it. Um, I think mm-hmm. one uh, one problem in in American culture in general is that we have a really hard time distinguishing between a millionaire and a billionaire, and and that, I think that that's a, yeah. just a deeply important distinction. Um, people get sports fans in particular often get angry because um, you know when there's a player strike or or there's any kind of hint of a player feeling um frustrated at the league for basically mm-hmm. exploiting them um and their their health and their career um they say look the, well, this this person this guy because you know the, the the male sports leagues are generally the ones where players have you know make millions of dollars um yeah. is is um you know they're so rich how can they say this but obviously the owners are in a whole different class um and and i think kind of what i was exploring in that piece and and part of um kind of one of the one of the tenets of our of our newsletter too is just that um there's that difference is an important one to explore and that and the players are are workers um obviously yes. that they're in a unique situation uh, because they're they are paid quite well. I mean, you know, obviously we you know we in in major male American sports leagues, players are are paid really well. Um, but we should we should be much more concerned about the ownership exploiting workers than we mm-hmm. are um, about players complaining about about that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think once again, it's it's kind of a very public labor fight that, that people can, can understand. And, and if we can start looking at it in a, in a way of, yeah, these are, these are workers fighting against unfair practices from an, an ownership class that is, that is basically just trying to squeeze out, you know, their, their young years, their health without any particular care for, um, what happens to these people in the long term. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a step. Um, I think things are pretty, pretty screwed up in, in, in sports world. Um, often in, in ways that they're screwed up in broader society, but, but often also in kind of unique ways. And, uh, a lot of what we're talking about are, are very kind of basic first steps, but I think a big part of the project is starting to be able to have those kind of broader conversations. Um, yeah. Yeah. And people kind of recoil, I think when you call, uh, athletes workers, um, and I think it's for a number of reasons and those reasons are actually not dissimilar from the reasons that, uh, have prevented like a really strong labor movement from developing in, in professional sports i mean one of those is like simply the brevity of most athletes careers like the average career of an nfl football player is like three seasons um well you know and, and part of this is like uh sports discourse tends to focus on like the superstars and the veterans and the people who've been in the league for you know, 15 years or whatever, like Tom Brady's and so on. But the vast majority of these people are cycling through relatively quickly. <laughs> many of them um, are black and many of them are from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds. Uh, and they have three years to make enough money. Uh, basically, I mean, many of them are pulling their families out of, out of poverty. Uh, they have really three years of labor productivity that they're trying to make the most of. And, they're also, you know, their performance is being dissected by 
uh, pundits and broadcasts to, you know, millions of people on live television. And they, you know, the demands to be in like peak physical shape are pretty high. So I think like the last thing on their minds uh, is like waging a labor battle, uh, which makes it very difficult to organize. But, you know, like as laborers, they're making a million dollars a year, but they're only working. They have, you know, three years of productive labor. Uh, so it's a kind of unique situation. And it's also like somewhat coercive. Um, you know, like we've, as a, I mean, this is why like talking about racism and, and, and talking about class advancement are like pretty important. But, you know, we've, we've, as a country, have given, like African Americans, like an extremely narrow range of possibility for how they can succeed and become, you know, rich. And one of those is entertainment, and the main one is sports. Uh, yeah. And it's like it's a major pipeline out of out of poverty. Uh, so when when someone when an African American athlete does have the chance to make a lot of money, like can you really blame them for wanting to get mm-hmm. the most out of it? I don't think so. Uh, so, I mean, they're, they're, they are workers. They're workers in kind of unique sense, but it, I think it's pretty detrimental when you lose sight of that. Yeah, I, the, oh. the NFL also has um, uh, is unique in that there's just overwhelming science now that, that playing in the NFL even for, or just playing football, full contact football even for a few years has extremely detrimental health effects. But I think part of the interesting part of this as well is that everything that Ian said, I think is spot on, but also um, professional sports is one of the few places where strong labor unions still exist. So there, there is the possibility of a greater labor fight that can actually um, kind of secure people more rights that, that um, for kind of numerous reasons, um, many of which have to do with, with what Ian was talking about, you know, just, just short careers, people kind of wanting to, you know, get their bag, get out, um, haven't materialized the, the unions haven't like really pushed for, for that so much. Um, the fights are more about, you know, the collective bargaining fights are a lot just about shared revenue, um, mm-hmm. rather than kind of broader systemic problems, but it is a place where, that could happen in a way that, um, you know, in the auto industry, for example. Yeah. And, and, and part of also what I discussed in my piece is that athletes are, are especially superstars are like basically irreplaceable, um, workers and commodities for, for their owners. So, so they actually do have a, a large degree of power that, you know, an, an auto worker, for example, doesn't have. And, and and that's a place where you can you can kind of see those labor fights starting to starting to form and take take shape if if um, you know players unions wanted to make that a priority. I mean, there's again there's there's a lot of reasons why they haven't. Um, it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to hard to blame them for negotiating in the way that they have. And also, even though the unions are strong, ownership often basically has the the commissioner, you know, the commissioner of the league works for the owners. Essentially, um, they have a lot of kind of structural advantages that makes that that make that hard. But again, like the, the, the unions are are pretty strong. I think it's time to take a little break. And in the meantime, if you haven't drank enough water during the day or during this episode, please make sure to grab a glass of water and hydrate yourself well. (laughs) I think we're close to turning this podcast into like a lifestyle one in which at the beginning we discuss mental health issues and how we should take care of each other and by drinking water throughout it. At the end, who knows what we're going to talk about sleep, getting eight hours of sleep. But I think this is so good, you know, because this is one aspect I love so much about the comrades on the left it's just the care they show for each other and just how much passion and compassion they offer because at the end of the day even those monday things like hey brush your teeth or hey drink enough water or hey i hope you get enough sun can sound like something mundane that yeah i don't want to get 
I don't want to be told again to do this, but it can also be a sign of care that someone really cares about you and wants the best of you. And that's what also we're trying to do here at Left Porch, to cultivate that feeling of love, which I think we've been missing in our society, which has been getting a bit too individualized and has been missing on human connections, despite COVID being here or not, because I think we're internalizing way more than actually sharing with the world. But I'll stop. Lifestyle episode is going to come soon, hopefully. <laughs> now let's enjoy this episode about sports and make sure if you are a fan of newsletters or of sports, subscribe to Southpaw, southpaw.substack.com. Make sure it's free. And if you want, help them with some money. Let's go to support the people are doing this amazing work. Can you actually maybe go a bit into this for people that are not very familiar with unionization in sports? Because I think I came, I came to realize that maybe the NBA is fully unionized, like one year ago or something. Like, am I wrong? Because for me, that was like a huge, like a, I don't know, revel- revelation or however you say that in English, since I didn't know that sports can actually be this powerful in terms of unionization. Yeah. So, so kind of major. Um, uh, so the the MLB, NBA, and NFL, which are kind of the three yep. big sports in um, the three big uh, men's sports in the U.S., along with uh, hockey, the NHL, um, all have had players' unions for a long time. Yep. Um, those those cover uh, basically. Um, so the kind of one thing we explored on the blog was that. Um, the minor league, so like basically the the pipeline into these these organizations. Often these people get paid terribly and are not unionized, um, so that's that's a big problem. But but once you get to kind of the top um, in those sports, you you do have a union that that can fight for you. Um, and actually, kind of historically, has won a lot of pretty powerful victories. Mm-hmm. So. Um, like into the into the 1960s and 70s in baseball, for example, there was there was basically no um, like th- th- there was some free agency, uh, which which means that players could could you know choose where they they would have contracts and then would be able to choose where they wanted to go afterwards. But but teams had a, a ton of control over their players. They were basically kind of just like assets, and the yeah. union was able to win a lot of victories for players. Um, so for example, now, like one common thing in a, in a contract is a a no trade clause, which basically means that a a player, um, you know, will sign a contract with a team and the team can't then like ship the player off to another city without the the player agreeing. That's certain. I mean, that's certainly not in all, in all contracts, but it's something that that people can negotiate for now. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and also, I mean, free agency, for a long time, players were getting a tiny share of the profits in all of these these leagues, and that share has increased um, over the past few decades in particular. I mean, contracts have gone up. People are getting paid um, more fairly, again, in those big leagues. There's, there's um, a lot of problems with especially women's sports um, athletes just really making like not even living wages and also in, in, in minor league men's sports, the, the same problem exists. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're a, a baseball player, a basketball player, football player, hockey player, um, at the professional level, when you're, when you're, um, in the league, you're, you make a good living, a uh, really mm-hmm. good living. And, um, that's something that, that was not always true. Yeah, I would, I would, I would call this spot on, but I would um, add one massive omission, which is uh, college athletes who are generating, especially in, in basketball, men's basketball, women's basketball to an extent, and men's football are, are generating sums of money that you know, are equivalent to what a professional sports league would be dealing with, if not sometimes more. And they are unpaid 
uh, are not allowed to unionize. And only recently, last year, um, were allowed to profit off of their name and likeness by like signing shoe deals or you know selling like personalized merchandise and stuff like that. So um, you know you like to to get to a point where you can join a strong union and uh, make the type of money that ma- major league and professional players are making, you're basically subjected to between four and 10 years of like ridiculous exploitation. Um, so like, you know, how much of a success, I mean, it's a success and I don't want to downplay it, but like how much of a success is a labor movement if it doesn't extend to its most vulnerable uh, workers and most vulnerable participants. So that's a very um, true statement. Actually, I'm very. This is a. This has been quite a personal and familial issue to me as well because I have a godson. I think. I think that might be the right English translation of this. Who has played for a third league for a soccer club here in Romania and just paid almost like I don't. I don't even know how to describe that. He was earning around three hundred, four hundred dollars a month, which is okay, but still very little to actually survive here and to make a living. Let's say in a Romanian city. While the superstars in the major league, yes, indeed, they can make up to $20,000 a month. And very often the discourse that I've heard uh, amongst uh, my godson and his friends and his players or the other players was the idea that if you're good enough, you'll make it. And it's such an individualized, actually, aspect I've noticed. And I'm quite worried because apart from maybe, I don't know, encouraging collaboration between players and trying to stick together to fight for some demands and push for better living wages for all of them, it tends to further radicalize them into individuals that fight against one another for the bid for the bigger share of the pie. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I think that that's that's spot on. I mean, mm-hmm. um, another thing we're trying to do with this project is is talk about how sports can be a collective enterprise because yep. they're they're often, you know, the the popular discourse around them is that they are completely individualistic, like you mentioned, um, and and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to go to the, to the just to put a, a, a point on the on the college problem in the in the U.S. I mean, you know, so few athletes make it past that level. Um, yeah. It's a it's a tiny percentage, and um, in the in in baseball, for example, there are a ton of athletes who are playing in the minor leagues and who never make it to to the major leagues. It's, you know, it's similar with with yeah, European football, um, that, you know, there are all these athletes in, uh, you know, second, third divisions and in countries that don't have, um, you know, huge, huge, uh, football, soccer, football leagues, um, that are never going to make it. And, uh, I think that ultimately there, there really needs to be some redistribution downwards and, and to suggest that that would, um, stop people from trying their hardest is ridiculous. I mean, kids like, you know, myself included Mm -hmm. as a, as a high school athlete, you know, dreamed of like playing baseball, you know, partly because you would make a lot of money, but a lot because, uh, you know, you, you want to play on the biggest stage. I mean, that, that attraction will, would not diminish people's drive at all. Um, so there, there really is, you know, these, these sports are, are making a, they make a ton of money, um, yeah. which, which shows up, you know, in, in superstars salaries to an extent, but, but also basically lines owners pockets. I mean, be, being the owner of a, of a professional sports franchise in the United States is like almost a surefire way to make money. Um, so I would say, yeah. I mean, there's there's no reason why there there shouldn't be more redistribution downwards. Mm-hmm. This actually brings me back to my both my father and my mother actually have lived through communist Romania times, which have ended in 1989. And one of the main aspects of that culture was the idea of sports ownership being uh, being done. Basically, sports were owned by and clubs were owned by the factories and by towns, collective of workers, so it was a very, let's say, community approach mindset, something that I think we don't often, let's see, 
hear about in the Western world because people, when often they criticize the Eastern bloc type of sports, it's often associated with propaganda. And one of the things that they're quite nostalgic about my parents is this idea that you guys have talked about is, yes, there is money to be made in the leagues, but there was such a powerful sentiment of just being able to play basketball, football, I don't know, handball, that just motivated those people to go forward. And the wage was kind of on the second level. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. And I, I mean, the power of sports is propaganda tools. Uh, that's important to bear in mind. And, and, and a, a criticism of the left and the left, me, like, you know, progressive media would have is that the left has kind of uh, like ceded control of professional sports to like the reactionary right. Like, mm-hmm. they just decided that it's not worth the effort. Like, the military flyers will remain, you know, the flag drenched patriotism. Uh, is the way that it's going to be. And I think that's a mistake. And I think, I don't know, I, I guess a broader criticism of the left I would have is like they're kind of allergic to things that people like. Like mm-hmm. they have a tendency to take, and I guess Calder and I are a bit guilty of this, but like they have a tendency to take things that people like and tell them all the reasons that they shouldn't like it. <laughs> but, um, and we do that occasionally with sport, yeah. no doubt. But I think it's important, like, you know, it's important for the left to pay attention to sports and contest sports because, I mean, as your example shows, like they can be a massively influential arena for political engagement and political education. And if the left in the U.S. decides to just give up on them, like that's a, a huge opportunity lost, I think. Um, no. no, definitely. And I, I could agree with this. I mean, the example of my parents in Romania and sports being, let's say, community building uh, force I mean, can be very simple seen in the United States as well, because I think I went to Bodo into a couple of football games or any other sports games, and I've witnessed a community of people coming around, and that really surprised me, because you don't necessarily often see that around here anymore when there is like a high school football game or high school basketball game, because often people associate those, you know, like, oh, it's kind of a waste of time, you know, yeah, we might go and support our kids, but nothing else, nothing more than that, we can just very simply go and watch some major league like a major league basically game and i think on those lines at sports is just like such a beautiful medium through which not only you can enjoy like someone kicking a soccer ball on the screen i think that's quite irrelevant it's just the the spirit you know of of companionship of camaraderie that can come up with a bunch of people watching that interacting with the players and with all of that yeah i think i was like WNBA is like such a fascinating counter example because whereas like football and uh, like the nba uh, not not the NBA. I mean, NBA is a good example with the WNBA, but like football and baseball in particular have become such like jingoistic uh, right wing propaganda tools, yeah. both for the like the fans and ownership and the players to an extent. But like the WNBA, for example, which is populated mostly by black women and oh, also by a lot of queer women and queer women of color, like mm-hmm. their fan base is is progressive and it's become as a whole like a progressive institution uh and advances progressive causes and um lgbt lgbtq issues but the mainstream sports culture has completely rejected it and like doesn't pay attention to it very much and you know there's some boosters on the left who are saying like i was like pay attention more to the WNBA." But yeah. it, it, by and large, has been left behind. And I think it's for that that precise reason. It's just like cutting so hard against the current. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I also think that um, part of the reason we think the left shouldn't just cede control is because, one, you, you can see success in, in places like the WNBA. And, and two, um, like we were talking about, it, it it's a it is especially attending a sports game is a quite collective thing to do you know it's a, it, it's it's a com- community builder and um it's a place where people um people say oh well it's a place where we can we can put aside our politics or you know our problems and come together as a group but it's it's also a place where like a a clear and present collective is formed and mm-hmm. it's it, it, it's a way for people to kind of engage in, in civil society in a way that they don't so much, especially in this country anymore. Um, and I don't know, to me, that's, 
that that seems like a a way in to yeah. uh left wing politics for mm-hmm. for a lot of people that it that, that that it if it if it was um kind of framed more in that way which is part of what mm-hmm. we're trying to do that that sports while continuing to be like a a great time can help people understand the power of a, a group yeah, and I mean, and, and in sports as in anything, like inaction is a form of action. And the fact that we think that sport should be this apolitical, uh, like escapist haven is a testament to the success that the right has had in turning sports into uh, professional sports, at least into a uh, right-wing propaganda tool. Like <laughs> the right does not want sports to infiltrate or infiltrate, I say, you know, my, like does not want sport to, to appear in politics because it would become so immediately obvious how like moral vac- morally vacuous right-wing politics are if you looked at it through the prism of sports. So I think that's why we find it helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm trying to counter that kind of like intuitive knee-jerk reaction that like sports are an apolitical escapist haven. Yeah, makes makes sense. I think you guys are doing a great job at at least uh, starting the discourse, and I'm I'm sure you're gonna continue with this platform and any further ones. And there are many other journalists out there. But I have like maybe a last question with regards to this, because very often in Europe, when we look at politics and sports, and people getting politically organized around sports, people tend to look at the ultras. I think it's our ultras culture of the soccer fans which often organize in those big collectives. They become very loyal to the team. It's kind of a cult sometimes. In many cases, they're associated with right-wing nationalistic politics, but there are some cases when they're anti-fascist, left-wingers, and the list can continue. Do you think that is the, a viable model to maybe be brought over to the United States, or there should be some reformation to it? Um, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Colin. <laughs> Okay, uh, I would say uh, it's it 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 is it is it is and isn't and it isn't. Um, I think probably in the U.S. the the kind of it's ju- it's just a different culture. I mean, you, you don't have the same kind of um, really township based um, or ideology based uh, support, uh, and I I think it would be kind of difficult to 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 build that i think kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier a bit we're hoping that that people's interest in sports and sports teams can can one propel them to see um to see the the world of sports differently but two kind of open up their mind to see the the broader political world in the u.s differently i think i think that the, the hope at least for me, is is less that um, teams will become uh, kind of more ideology based or, or or have more of a of a specific political goal um, than that people's kind of interest in this in this collective phenomenon can can lead them towards um, both understanding the phenomenon itself better and and to to uh, in my mind, better politics. Yeah, I would say the one area where I think that sports teams in the U.S. could have the impact that like anti-fascist sports clubs in Europe have had is like on on anti-racist direct action. Like sports teams uh, are collectives of like some of the most uh, influential and culturally visible people of color in the country. And I've been encouraged by uh, athletes of color, like finding, using their platform to advocate for like more uh, aggressive anti-racist platforms, both from ownership and from their fans. And I think if fans met players uh, where they're at, like that could be a really productive thing um, for anti-racist politics in the U.S. Um, but I, I agree with color. I don't think it would be as easy. Uh, both because like fan bases are bigger and more uh, like ideologically homogenous in the U.S., mm-hmm. and because I think that like the roots of 
uh, of racism run much deeper uh, here than like even fascism does in Europe. So, yeah, and and I think part of the reason that the left has given up on um, sports is because it it doesn't seem like a natural place for a, a clear class critique, given that um, you know a lot of stars make a lot of money. Uh, but I, I don't think that's true. I think it. I think mm-hmm. it is a. It it is a pretty pretty natural place to have a a pretty powerful class critique because it's a it's a place where you have like a a collective of um, you know hundred million to billionaires uh, that can that that also exist in the public arena and are are kind of um, beholden to uh, both fans and athletes in a way that. Uh, a lot of other people with that much money aren't really beholden to anyone. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. Well, guys, we are almost approaching the end. I will have to cut it quite soon because I must actually go and vote since we have parliamentary elections today and it's a, it's an exciting time for us. But with all of those, uh, with all of that analysis we've done in the past hour, I have just one last question for you. And what is, what is there something that, people should be paying close attention to in the next year in sports? Um, uh, I, I can go. I, I, I wrote a piece about mm-hmm. um, a lawsuit in the minor leagues uh, that is fighting for back pay uh, mm-hmm. for like almost um, close to like over millions of dollars of back pay for athletes in, who played in minor league baseball who are underpaid. And that would have uh, it's it's working its way it's been working its way through the courts the federal courts for like six years, but mm-hmm. it's coming to a head and I think that there might be a ruling in the next year or so, and it's kind of an arcane and like difficult and legally technical lawsuit. But at the end of the day, what it would do is it would force the league to basically acknowledge that it had underpaid its minor league athletes for decades and and would compel them to compensate them for that which would be a huge material victory, but also a big symbolic one. And I think could have ripple effects. Uh, it would like create a legal strategy basically for um, amateur and minor league athletes to seek legal redress. And mm-hmm. I think that could be pretty important. Yeah, that's, that's a big one. I would say the other big piece is that 2020 was a, was a kind of banner year for sports activism. Um, in part because it was it was very easy to set up in opposition to Donald Trump, uh, who yeah. is, uh, you know, a racist um, and maybe a fascist. I mean, you know, you can quibble about the definition, but is is like overall just a horrible man. Uh, there's <laughs> there's no argument about that. I think among among a lot of athletes, um, although certainly not, you know it's very sport dependent. Um, when when Joe Biden assumes office, I think one big question I'm going to have is whether that activism can can carry forward and, and continue to 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 win uh, some some symbolic and and material victories. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, it was honestly such a big pleasure to have you here, and I feel like in this hour I've learned a lot about sports, uh, left wing commentary of sports, the 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 place of politics and sports as well. And I would like to make you like public an invitation, maybe to collaborate further in the future, because I think there's just so much more to talk about it. And I'm very curious maybe to even discuss ideas of, uh, of representation in sports, as we've touched upon a little bit here, and maybe like further unionization processes and other countries' involvement in sports and so on and so forth. But with all of this, dear guys, uh, honestly, thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest of the evening. I must run right now because the, clo- the polls are going to close very soon. And I'm very much looking forward to further collaboration with you. Yeah, yeah, us, us too. And, and thank, thank you so much. Uh, it, was, it was fun. And good luck for yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good rest of the day, guys. Okay, take care. Well, I left to vote, and so did around 30% of the eligible people in the country. The results are quite grim right now at the end of the day, and a couple of days after I'm finally putting together the pieces of this podcast, it looks like a neo, I don't want to call it fascist, but fuck it, call it, you know, like an ultra-nationalist party is just has just entered parliament with 9% of the vote, very close to 10 
after all the other parties are gonna seize their votes because they weren't able to make the threshold, which is 5% to remain. This is crazy, and this is just a time where I think we need to organize and we need to follow the Joe Hill's, you know, thoughts, which said that don't mourn, organize, because this party took everyone by surprise. They were participating in local elections and they won below 1%, and the local elections took place four weeks or five weeks ago. And in just this little amount of time, they were able to put together 10%, 500,000 votes. And it's crazy. And after the first day of being in parliament, or after the elections, let's say like this, they were able to recruit 15,000 more people. I know it's sad, but I just want to bring awareness to what's happening in Romania right now, my home country, which I really care deeply about, and I care about the communities that are being impacted. And one of the ways in which this party rose to power is because of they were very able and, w and willing to capitalize on people's fears. And they did. They very much did so. They were very aware of people's anxieties and fears about how they were feeling lonely, how they were feeling that they didn't have a movement to represent them. And they took advantage of that, coupled it with ultra-nationalist rhetoric, and there they are, 10%. I don't want to leave you on a sad note to this. I hope in the future I'll be able to talk a little bit about this party and the implication of ultra-nationalist politics in Romania, since it's not something new, but actually has been repeatedly in parliament and outside parliament ever since the revolution took place in 1989. Uh, but it's a topic that I need more research on and I hope I'll bring some people around the table for that. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure you subscribe to Southpaw, southpaw.substack.com. Make sure you show some love to the people we take our music from, which is Lobo Loco. And also make sure that you and your family try to stay safe as well as your community during those holidays. I hope you have a good time. Sorry for ending it on a grim note, but fuck it. The fascists are rising to power. <laughs> we need to do something. See you later.